Welcome to the Key Wealth Matters podcast, a series of candid conversations with leading experts about how individuals and organizations can grow and protect their finances, tailored around current events and trends. Here's your host for today's podcast, Brian Peterangelo. Welcome to the Key Wealth Matters weekly podcast, where we casually ramble on about important topics, including the markets, the economy, human ingenuity, and almost anything under the sun giving you the keys to unlock the mysteries of the markets and investing. Today is Friday, April 8th, 2022. I'm Brian Peterangelo, and in honor of the incomparable Jim Nance, I'd like to say hello, friends, and welcome you to today's podcast. And that saying, hello, friends, has so much more to do with it than just golf. It's actually about a father-son relationship and the challenges of dealing with Alzheimer's disease. So I encourage you to learn more about that behind the scenes and that phrase, and what a wonderful story. With me today, I'd like to introduce our leaderboard of investing experts. Some might even say they're a great foursome and also masters in their own field. George Mateo, Chief Investment Officer, Steve Haight, Head of Equities, Rajiv Sharma, Head of Fixed Income, and Cindy Honcharenko, Senior Fixed Income Portfolio Manager. As a reminder, a lot of great content is available on key.com slash wealth insights, including updates from our Wealth Institute on many different subjects, and especially our Key Questions article series, addressing a relevant topic for investors each Wednesday. So it's been a light week in terms of economic information. We had some PMI data and, of course, the release of the meeting minutes for the Federal Reserve's meeting back on March 16th, which we will certainly cover. George, let's start with you for your updated outlook. When you look down the fairway of the investing landscape, do you see some sand traps and some water hazards, or do you see a clear path to the green? Well, the sand traps and water hazards is an interesting metaphor, to say the least, given that it's Masters Week, Brian. Uh, so I'm glad you mentioned that for all our golf fans out there. Yeah, I, I think it is a bit of both, honestly. I mean, I think this is kind of the best of times, the worst of times kind of environment. Um, you know, many uh, many people are coming back from vacation and spring breaks and so forth. And from what I'm hearing, um, vacations are really expensive these days. Uh, places are full, restaurants are not taking reservations because um, they're just they're just too full. They're, they're, they're facing too much demand. Um, so to some extent, it seems like the economy has never been stronger. Uh, we had a bit of a weakness at the beginning part of this quarter in the sense that I think GDP was a little bit soft, um, probably because of Omicron and some other lingering effects from the virus. But we really are exiting um, the first quarter and into the second quarter with considerable momentum. Uh, we've seen unemployment claims this week fall to an all-time, all-time low, a record low in terms of people filing for unemployment. Um, we've also seen wages start to pick up. Uh, I noted that a really large retailer announced a 25% uh, increase in wages for their first year hires, which is just remarkable. But on the flip side, you start to see, unfortunately, food prices rise to their all-time high level as well. There was a survey out uh, that the United Nations puts together that talked about inflation running at an all-time high from food prices. So kind of a best of times, worst of times. It's interesting to see that rates, interest rates have really risen in the past couple of days in, in spite of this, uh, and maybe because of this more likely. So maybe we should turn it over to, first of all, to Rajiv to get some thoughts on what's happening in fixed income. Rajiv, what do you make of this? Good morning, George. Yeah, we've had uh, you know an interesting move and continue to have interesting move higher in rates across the curve, but we had four consecutive days now of steepening. Uh, so many times on these calls, we've talked about uh, the curve flattening uh, today we're seeing flattening again, but this was after four consecutive days of steepening. We started the week with the twos tens curve inverted by 10 basis points. And then due to the steepening and some strong cues from the Fed minutes about aggressive monetary policy, we uninverted. So the twos tens moving to a difference of about 20 
20 basis points or so right now. Now, right now we're seeing the 10-year treasury note yield at, at, a, uh, at a level of 2.72%. And that's the highest we've seen since March, 2019. So, I mean, the Fed's messaging is very clear. They're gonna do whatever it takes to defeat inflation. And the market continues to see the Fed behind the curve. And that's why you continue to see yields move higher. Um, but it's very interesting to see the, the fixed income markets and how they're reacting to, uh, to this. So, I mean, if you're in any, the most interest rate sensitive part of the markets are, are getting hurt the most. Uh, but if you look at corporate credit, for instance, we've seen a four-week rally in uh, in credit spreads. Uh, we're wider on the year, but certainly no alarm bells there. And uh, and this recession narrative with the headlines, we could see spreads come under pressure. But uh, the prudent approach that we're taking is to move into sectors and names that are in higher quality. Um, we did see 25 billion in new issuance and investment grade this week, and and. Uh, this is after a month where we saw 230 billion in new issuance of credit in corporate credit, investment grade corporate credit. So um, deals are getting done. Demand for investment grade cre uh, credit is still there. We should see a slowdown in new issuance this week uh, because it's earnings blackout period. However, typically during this time, we see the big six U.S. banks announce new bond deals. They're very liquid deals, and I feel like investors are looking for liquidity right now. So, Rajiv, just to kind of put some um, some terms, or maybe some some of the, maybe provide some definitions to some of these terms. I guess when we talk about curves, of course, we're talking about you're talking about inverted curves. We're talking about the the situation in which short term rates are higher than long term rates. Um, normally, of course, by taking on additional duration and extending maturities, most of the time investors have to pay, or actually they they demand more payment and compensation. Uh, by investing in longer-term bonds versus short-term bonds. But what you're saying when the curve gets inverted is when short-term bonds are yielding higher uh, or more than uh, a long-term bond. So I guess they're, they're, we've kind of talked about this uh, from time to time, but I thought it'd be helpful just to provide that, uh, that context again. I think there's a lot of, um, we talk about this inversion-diversion uh, moment where there's been a lot of ink spilled, I think, around the notion of what an inverted yield curve means. And I guess from my perspective, there's four things to know. I mean, one of which, of course, is that not all curves are saying the same thing right now, which is kind of tricky, where sometimes there, there's uh, the signal, maybe people think there's a signal inside an inverted yield curve that suggests a recession might be looming. Uh, but right now, a lot of curves are saying different things. Uh, but as it relates to the recession signal, I think curves need to stay inverted for a while before becoming too concerning. And right now, you mentioned it's been kind of an off-again, on-again kind of thing this past few weeks or so. Um, it is true, though, that thirdly, I think it is true that inverted curves have been pretty good forecasters um, for recessions, but really they've not done a great job with the timing of one, meaning that there can be, you know, 6, 12, 18 months before the recession actually occurs um, once the curve is inverted. So there really is a lot, of, a lot of time between the event itself and the recession starting. And also then lastly, in, in between that period of time, you've also seen stocks do somewhat well. I mean, they've kind of stayed buoyant. Sometimes they've rallied, it's, they, the, the information is not as, as conclusive, but um, there have been times when the curve actually has inverted and stocks um, say somewhat buoyant. So I think it's kind of a point to put that into uh, the context, but you're right, I think also to suggest that the Fed Reserve has really uh, really heated up their rhetoric in terms of what they're thinking they need to do to uh, damp down some of these inflation pressures. So maybe we could bring Cindy into the conversation uh, because there was a significant um, speaker on the Fed, uh, the Fed speaker, speaker circuit this week that I think said some interesting signals about what the Fed might be doing. So Say that three times fast, George. Yeah, I couldn't get it out, sorry. <laughs> but in terms of what the Fed might be thinking, Cindy, why don't you give us an update on what you heard this week from, um, from Chair Brainerd, Vice Chair Brainerd. Yes, well, so 
the Fed minutes revealed that their detailed plan for normalizing the balance sheet. Surprisingly enough, uh, even though Brainerd was, you know, she warned about a rapid balance sheet reduction with larger caps and a shorter phase in, the details of the minutes were largely in line with what the Fed watchers expected. I, it was it was a hawkish minute message, but not aggressively hawkish, which was good. Uh, one of the surprises was the T-bill top-off. Uh, but other than that, everything was largely in line. And, and prior to the minutes being released, the consensus was for a hundred billion cap on the monthly runoff with a two month phase in. So Cindy, and, what, what's the, what's the T-bill top-off? I don't know what that means. What is that? What is the T-bill top-off? They're adding in it. So they're doing treasuries and mortgages, but then they're also going to uh, decrease the amount of T-bills that they have in their portfolio as well. And currently the Fed holds 326 billion in T-bills and that predates the pandemic. And initially all Fed watchers thought that those T-bills, that that T-bill portfolio was gonna remain untouched, but apparently that's not the case as the minutes showed. Uh, but the T-bill top off doesn't really make a huge difference in terms of speed in which the balance sheet is going to shrink. In fact, uh, money market funds would actually, that, that, that the T-bill runoff will increase the supply in bills, which I think would be very welcomed by money market funds right now. So basically you got the Fed slowly draining liquidity, I guess, to put it in real simple terms, right? Is that a, a right. fair summary? From, yeah, fair summary. Okay. So, so Steve, over to you now in terms of kind of what's happening with uh, the kind of ripple effects from the credit markets to the equity markets. And maybe we could even start with kind of a, a sector that's really front and center of this, which is home building and housing, right? A lot of uh, a lot of consternation, a lot of focus has been on the backup in interest rates, and now mortgage rates uh, have crept above five percent for the first time in, in many many years. Um, how do you see that playing through some of the things you're watching in the equity market? Well, when we look at at builders, uh, build, builders are, are clearly under a lot of pressure right now. They are a portion of the consumer discretionary sector. And, and you know, what we see right now with, with this is, is classic late cycle dynamics developing. One of the ways that we measure this empirically is to look at the relationship of a, of a, of a group like discretionary, which is, as I said, a, a consumer cyclical and compare it to something that's more defensive in nature. And the classic defensive growth play is healthcare. And what we've seen, <clears throat> since the turn of the year, George, is a really pronounced outperformance of healthcare relative to discretionary. Um, and it's, it's accelerated here as mortgage rates have moved higher. So to us, we see clear late cycle, uh, late, late cycle signs right now. And, and, it's, um, and it's certainly concerning for, for things like, like, uh, like the housing stocks. <clears throat> we also think that when you look at banks, Banks should be outperforming when you have rates moving higher. They typically move in lockstep with the 10-year yield, uh, especially when you look at banks relative to something like utilities, which if you think about utilities, they're heavily levered. Higher rates tend to mean that they underperform. So you, you, should, you should see banks massively outperforming utilities in a tape like this. 
uh, with rates structured the way they are. And, and they have also come under massive selling pressure since February on a relative basis to utilities. So to us, uh, that's yet another sign that we are clearly late cycle. Um, and, and, and if not, the, the market's starting to at least look at the possibility that the Fed could be making a policy error, quite frankly. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that term late cycle, and that does uh, that doesn't mean necessarily again a recession is at our doorstep, but it does suggest that things are slowing down, uh, and maybe more importantly, what we're seeing right now, our financial conditions getting pretty pretty restrictive, right? And that usually is the form of interest rates that have risen a lot, that uh, can slowly lead us to back us up of demand or other consumption habits um, going down a little bit. So. Maybe then getting back over to you, Rajiv, for a second. Um, at what point do you think, or maybe where do you see interest rates going from here? We've already seen a pretty big move up in interest rates this year, um, and if we use the the uh, the ten-year, I'm sorry, the, yeah, the ten-year Treasury as a as a guidepost, today we're roughly 265, 270 or so, um, and just a couple of months ago we were certainly well below two. Where do you see we might? Uh, where do you think we might be going from here? It's a great question, George. I think that uh, rates continue to move higher from here. Um, and the reason I say that is because uh, you have a Fed right now that's going to do whatever it takes for uh, combating inflation. That's going to impact the front end of the yield curve. But now if we introduce the, the terms of quantitative tightening, which would be the form of a balance sheet reduction by the Fed, that will make this pressure that we're seeing on the 10-year that's keeping the 10-year pretty anchored, it's going to move the 10-year up. And so we can continue to see a steeper curve at that point. And we could see the 10-year move higher. We're at 272 right now. Many industry experts thought we'd be at 275 by the end of the year. We're there right now. So I, I see ourselves moving higher uh, to get us to the end of the year. And I also feel that uh, you know there's going to be a point where you'll see the curve start to steepen. You'll start to see the 10-year move higher. Um, and I think at that point, you will see investors start to look at the 10-year and look at an opportunity to, uh, to jump in. But right now, I see it moving higher. Hey, Rajiv, I have a question for you. When you think about the way that they're going to implement this balance sheet reduction, I mean, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I, I know a lot of people get worried that, hey, who's going to be buying these bonds that the Fed is is selling off of the balance sheet? Really, I think it's about runoff and managing the runoff, isn't it? Yes, it's managing the runoff. Um, right now, if you look at the uh, what they're going to think about, if you look at the minutes, uh, they suggested a peak asset drop of about $95 billion per month. That would be 60 billion in treasuries and 35 billion in mortgage-backed securities. Um, we probably won't start that way. We'll probably start with 40 billion in June, and we ramp ourselves up by September to 95 billion. That would be the way it would go. I think that uh, the interesting thing is, if you look at the mortgage-backed security market, they're already anticipating that you know there's going to be uh, not a lot of buyers out there. Banks might pick up some of it, but uh, if you look at mortgage-backed securities right now, eventually I think that you see them go wider. Many people thought mortgage-backed securities would end the year flat. And now if you look at estimates, you're looking at 30 to 50 basis points wider because of this quantitative tightening or reduction of the balance sheet. So clearly MBS is the part of the market that we expect to be under the most pressure, right? Agreed, yep. What about earnings, Steve? I mean, we're gonna start seeing companies report earnings uh, next week. I think you alluded to that briefly, but what's the outlook for corporate earnings for the next couple months? So co corporate earnings should move higher as we head through earnings season, which starts in earnest next at the end of next week. Uh, the thing to, to really focus on is going to be the guidance. Uh, analysts have been very reticent to take guidance up as we've moved through the end of the first quarter. 
due to all the cross currents that we've had, whether it's Russia, Ukraine, whether it's the Fed, everything else. Um, and you know, w when when I look at the charts, what I see is a market that's that that could go either direction, higher or lower. And I think that the earnings outlook is going to be what determines the near-term outcome in terms of direction for the market for the next three to six months. Um, clearly, we, we always say that earnings season is important, but actually this time it really is. Excellent information today. So George, Steve, Rajiv, and Cindy, thanks for providing your insights. We appreciate it, and we hope everyone has an enjoyable weekend. Thanks to our listeners for joining us today, and be sure to subscribe to the Key Wealth Matters podcast through your favorite podcast app. As always, past performance is no guarantee of future results, and we know your financial situation is personal to you. So reach out to your relationship manager, portfolio strategist, or advisor for more information. We'll catch up with you next week to see how the world and the markets have changed and provide those keys to help you achieve your financial success. The Key Wealth Matters podcast is produced by the Key Wealth Institute. The Key Wealth Institute is comprised of a collection of financial professionals representing key entities, including key private bank, key bank institutional advisors, and key investment services. Any opinions, projections, or recommendations contained herein are subject to change without notice and are not intended as individual investment advice. This material is presented for informational purposes only and should not be construed as individual tax or financial advice. Bank and trust products are offered by Key Bank National Association, member FDIC, and equal housing lender. Key ba private bank and key bank institutional advisors are part of Key Bank. Investment products, brokerage, and investment advisory services are offered through Key Investment Services LLC or KISS, member FINRA, SIPC, and SEC registered investment advisor. Insurance products are offered through Key Corp Insurance Agency USA or KIA. KIS and KIA are affiliated with Key Bank. Investment and insurance products are not FDIC insured, not bank guaranteed, may lose value, not a deposit, not insured by any federal or state government agency. KeyBank and its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. Individuals should consult their personal tax advisor before making any tax-related investment decisions. This content is copyrighted by KeyCorp 2021.